Welcome to Seafoodie, a podcast series that seeks out meaningful conversations about the issues surrounding seafood and the complex system that gets it to your mouth. I'm your host, Chef Robert Jones, and I interview guests from all over the country who make up the fabric of our seafood supply chain. On today's episode, we are talking to two tribal leaders in the Pacific Northwest about the centuries-old role of seafood in Native American heritage, how they approach the management of those natural resources, the role of tribal seafood companies, and how they're faring during the pandemic. Um, from Northern Washington in the Lummi Reservation, we're joined by Lisa Wilson. Lisa is a council member and Lummi tribal member with years of experience and expertise in natural resource management, fisheries, and treaty rights advocacy. She graduated from the Northwest Indian College with a bachelor's in native environmental science and has used her education in her roles as the Endangered Species Act manager and policy representative for Lummi Natural Resources. As one of the few women in her field, Lisa works alongside other tribes, co-managers, and stakeholder groups on a number of critical issues. For example, Lisa was recently appointed by Washington State Governor Jay Inslee to the Ecosystem Coordination Board of the Puget Sound Partnership. And from Western Puget Sound, we are joined by Anthony Forsman. Mr. Forsman is a member of the Suquamish Indian Tribe and has decades of experience in resource management and seafood. Previously, he worked as the fisheries director for the Suquamish for 17 years, uh, tribal executive director for two years, and as a policy analyst for the Northwest Indian Fisheries Commission for 16 years, working on shellfish and wild, uh, wildlife policy. In 2014, he shifted to being the general manage, manager of the Suquamish Seafoods Enterprise, uh, a chartered business entity of the Suquamish tribe that sells wild-caught and aquacultured seafood into the commercial market nationally and internationally. Thank you both for joining us today. Welcome. Glad yeah, to be here. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, at least I want to start with you. Um, I watched the documentary short that you produced called Time Immemorial about the rich history of salmon and fishing in the Lummi tribe, and it was incredible. Uh, uh, kudos to you. Um, I want to see if you could start us off by taking just a few minutes to describe the heritage of seafood in these tribal nations, both pre and post European contact. Yeah, um, so um, Aichka Chiel, as um, it was in introduced that I am Letha Wilson. My grandmother um, was Sarah James from Lummi and my father was Reginald Wilson, Rusty Wilson from Lummi. Um, so for personally, um, for me, um, my grandmother met my grandfather in a fish cannery in Tawasson in Canada um, in the early 1920s. Um, salmon has been uh, described for our people as it is important as the air that we breathe. Um, and as of most tribes, you know, we are the salmon people. Uh, it's been stated that when the tide is out, the table is set. Um, you know, the seafood and salmon, they've um, sustained our way of life since time immemorial. And it's something that we've uh, relied on for hundreds of years, thousands of years. Um, and in the Point Elliott Treaty that we signed back in 1855, um, that was the utmost important thing to us that we were able to sustain that way of life. Um, we've used salmon we started out in the San Juans and we would migrate to where our, um, our food source was. So we, we did migrate where, you know, the different seasons and gathering, hunting and gathering berries and, and fishing for salmon and um, gathering clams. And it's in all of the ceremonies that, we've, um, that we have. Um, it's very important for our funerals, and we have the first salmon ceremony that you know gives thanks to the salmon and um, and in return we return the bones back to the water so it is vitally important it's uh, like i said it's as important as the air that we breathe tony do you want to add to that uh, i just want to 
you know, just reemphasize, you know, what she is saying about the importance of these resources to tribes all throughout Puget Sound. And um, although we face many challenges um, in maintaining that, um, I think the tribes are, you know, up to the task to try to, um, you know, maintain that. Um, I know we're hurting right now. Um, um, the, the COVID thing is not allowing tribes to do their, um, their ceremonies and um, their other, the, the other gatherings we have this time of year. It's, it's hurting, but I think we're strong enough to where we're going to get through it. I think um, uh, projects like Lisa was involved helps perpetuate that, you know, and preserve it. So, yeah, I you know totally agree, one hundred percent. So I know that it it has been a fight um, uh, from the very beginning um, to maintain that heritage and that way of life. Uh, I think it would be helpful for our listeners to really understand what that fight has looked like over the years. I think a lot of people listening to the podcast won't be familiar with the Bolt decision. Um, Lisa, maybe you could walk us through real quick and, de and describe the, that landmark decision that made its way to the Supreme Court and, and what it meant um, for tribal fishing. Sure. So I think we just have to step back, like I talked about earlier, um, about what the Point Elliott Treaty was. Um, and um, so what it was is that, you know, our people um, ceded a lot of land um, in, um, in the understanding that we would always retain our way of life. And like I said before, that it was the utmost thing in the treaty that we were still going to be able to, to fish and hunter and gather in our usual and accustomed areas. Uh, so what ended up happening is at the time there, um, you know, there was no way to um, preserve the salmon. So, you know, it was agreed upon that, you know, we would always have salmon for our frying pans. That's what, you know, Isaac Stevens, who um, helped, who facilitated that signing of the treaty. Um, once um, canning was um, discovered, um, then it became a big commodity and so when that commodity um you know everybody was after the salmon you know they say that you know you could walk across the river on the backs of salmon that's how the picture that was painted of the abundance that we had there was no need um and so what ended up happening once it became a commodity um the tribes were really literally pushed out of our fishery um you know we had um a, like the lummy has been famous for what's called the reef net fishery. And over the years, we've been pushed out of our own fishery that we created. Um, and so we started to, we had to adapt to um, the changing times and we had to learn um, the, um, the way of the court systems. And so we did adapt and um, there was some court cases over the years that led up to the monumental 1974 Judge Bolt decision, where it was affirmed that the tribes were able to take, to be able to have access to 50% of the resources. And at the time it was really monumental because we were pushed out so far that we were barely getting into any of the fisheries. So from that um, monumental um, decision, we were also, um, uh, not given, we don't say that we were given, it was taken. You know, there's, we, we say that we had 100% of the resources and we didn't give up, you know, we didn't, we were not awarded half, we gave away half, um, just to put that into perspective. Um, and so, um, yeah, just, oh, that's part of, um, then we were awarded um, co-management um, and so, so we as tribes up here, which is different um, than across the um, states, is that when it comes to our fisheries, we are at the table, government to government, with the state and and the federal um, NOAA, the different entities. Now, Tony, of course, uh, flash forwarding in time, you worked for many years in that co-management process that was facilitated by. The, the U.S. Supreme Court reaffirming Bolt in 1979. 
Can you tell us a little bit about that co-management with the with Washington State and the surrounding states and with the tribes and how it works? Well, it was, you know, first of all, a little bit of the history of it. It was a challenge, um, number one. Um, the state did not want to recognize any co-management authority um, with the tribes, even after the Supreme Court decision. And we were basically fighting every step of the way, every, almost every regulation, almost every management plan. Um, they were just um, refusing to cooperate. And finally, in the um, early mid 80s, um, there was some political um, courage brought forth from the state of Washington by certain governors and individuals that said, we're gonna change the way we do things here. And we're gonna accept tribal co-management and realizing that this is better for the resource, better for the uh, better for public policy, and it was something that we started to build on um, from there. Um, during the uh, most tumultuous times, um, there would be over 300 um, different um, disputes that were not getting resolved um, during, a, during a fishing season. It was just unbelievable. Um, but once we started co-management with the tribe, with the state, and started working out these things amongst ourselves, um, it went to three, I think, in one year. So it was very successful. You know, and, and I think the tribes have built, built um, on that. Um, the second part of that is the, what I call the, I like to call part three of the Bolt decision. And that was re reaffirmation of treaty rights to shellfish. Um, during the original Bolt decision, shellfish was included um, in the um, court proceedings. Salmon and steel had just became so overwhelming for the court that um, they said, well, we'll work on this later, um, Judge Bolt said. Well, later was much later, Judge Bolt died and uh, um, it was assigned to a judge um, in California by the name of Edward Rafiti. Um, he um, heard the case and the state was making a ludicrous argument that the treaty only applied to fish, thin fish, didn't apply to shellfish, which was a ridiculous argument that they made. And I think the, um, the judge, that's one of the first things that he ruled on and said, fish are fish, whether they have claws or fins. Um, tribe utilized them historically and uh, they're included in the treaty right. After that was, you know, after that was um, um, decided, we went into a process where we had to, um, we had to develop 37 different management plans for the harvest of shellfish. And over a, over a process of several months, tribes in the state were able to do that. And um, it really helped facilitate um, tribes getting involved in those fisheries again. So um, yeah, it's, um, um, it's, it was a difficult process um, and it took some courageous tribal leaders and um, some courageous state leaders to sit down and try to figure out a different way of doing these things because in the end, we all knew what was best for the resource. So Lisa, in the, in the documentary you produced, uh, one of the fascinating things I learned was the, how far in the forefront um, the Lummi Nation was in developing aquaculture. Uh, I, I, that clip from the Dick Cavett show um, was really fascinating in, in the national attention that you got for setting up, you know, a, one, probably one of the first uh, oyster aquaculture farms. Um, can you talk a little bit about that history and, and, and if that industry is still, still exists today? Yeah. Um, so uh, in the late 60s, as it said in the documentary, um, we were uh, approached by Dr. Wally Heath. Um, he was known for a lot of his work in um, the Pacific Islands with aquaculture. And at the time, um, it was um, they were looking at an um, a magnesium oxide plant um, that would have um, dumped a lot of toxic waste into the waters. And so 
we opposed that and and in, and we ended up um, partnering with Dr. Wally Heath and a few others that came in and um, and in the in the film it shows the magnitude of what the project was. You know, we've got a, a dike that was built in between tides. It was a very um, monumental thing. Um, it was very innovative for the times. And we were awarded one of the biggest grants to do that. There was a lot of trust and we did, you know, make that work. Um, that And that's what started, that's what became um, what is now the Northwest Indian College. Out of that, um, out of that project, they started the Lummi Indian School of Aquaculture. And I just find that kind of ironic that the acronym is LISA. <laughs> um, but, um, but yeah, so from there we needed to train technicians and we needed, and so we started that school and then it became an accredited school. And that's what I really, um, enjoy is that I actually went through that, the schooling for my degree in, um, uh, native environmental science. Um, so we do still have, um, we, we seed, um, gooey ducks. Um, and uh, that's one of our big markets and we do have some clams and we also have our Lummy Bay hatchery down there. So it is still up and running, you know, after, you know, 50 years, um, we're still going strong and actually, um, we are looking at master's programs for our Northwest Indian college. So yeah, it's, it's been quite the legacy that we've, that we've left there. Legacy and one of the most incredible stories of resilience, um, yeah. you know, a history that everybody should understand. Uh, Tony, you have shifted over to the commercial side uh, of seafood. Um, and she mentioned gooey duck. I know that's one of the critical products that you're overseeing. Can you tell us a little bit about the Suquamish Seafood Company and how you have built out a commercial enterprise and a source of revenue for the tribe? Sure. Um, Suquamish Seafoods is a separate chartered entity of the um, Suquamish tribe. So we operate as a separate, separate business group from, from tribal government. We have a, a seven member board uh, made up of tribal members. Um, our main, um, our main um, business is wild is wild harvested gooey duck. Um, we have approximately four hundred thousand pounds a year that we um, that we harvest. Um, we're unique as to where we do where most tribes that have gooey duck fisheries um, do individual fishermen quotas um, to each individual fisherman. Uh, we run it as a tribal fishery. We have twenty five contracted tribal divers. We provide the boats, equipment, and stuff, and they're paid a percentage of their catch. Um, and we market the rest, which essentially all goes to China. Um, Suquamish Seafoods was created in 1996 um, in response to the graffiti decision that I had talked about before, as a tribe early on decided that they were going to run this as a tribal fishery. Um, to maximize um, to maximize the value of the fishery and to where all tribal members could benefit. Um, and early on, um, it was a big provider of income to tribal elders and tribal elder programs. Um, this continued on for a number of years. Um, back in 2014, um, the tribe decided that they wanted to build a new seafood plant, expand the business, and try to do a better marketing um, job of um, selling our gooey duck, as well as get into other, other, um, other enterprises. Um, so when I come on board, um, we evaluated which way we wanted to go um, besides gooey duck, and we have been developing a um, tumble bag oyster, Pacific oyster program, that until the pandemic hit was very, very, very successful. Um, we were shooting for um, over 2 million um, seed to put out this year. That's kind of been tamped back because of the pandemic. Um, and we, fa we, we face some challenges there. Um, also with um, tribal gooey duck, um, uh, 
we have been under we have been under pressure in the past couple of years, even before the pandemic, uh, with the Trump administration trade policies in China. Um, our um, our GUI got um, tariffed pretty heavily, and this was industry wide, just not tribes. So the the entire industry has suffered, you know, over the past couple of years. Um, in 2018, we had our best year ever. Um, even with the initial set of tariffs, um, we we set a record for high for the highest price we were able to obtain. Um, when the second round of when the second round of tariffs came in in 2019, um, profits just went to the floor and we barely broke even. So we suffered a loss of over probably over a million dollars in one year because of just some bad trade policy and tariff situation with China. Those have now been lifted um, and we're starting to recover that a bit, but it's still a challenge. Um, and possibly the biggest disappointment now is um, with our oyster sales, which were increasing. Um, <clears throat> once we are selling about, oh, I'd say almost 2,000 dozen oysters a week, and it was growing. Um, when this shutdown occurred, it went to zero. I mean, when the governor announced the shutdown of the restaurants and industries, all of our orders were canceled. Um, and it's been a slow, uphill climb from there because those those uh, tumble bag oysters um, are heavily dependent on the restaurant market and raw bar and that was just non-existent for quite a while so we're in that process now evaluating that on, on which way to go so you know it's been tough um, but i think we'll come back from it it's just going to take some time um, we employ a lot of tribal members we employ about 45 tribal members and local and local native folks also. So this is a very important industry for the tribe. I want to come back to COVID in just a minute. Um, I want to step back for a second. The audience of the show skews a little bit towards the south and the east, so some of our listeners won't be familiar with Gooey Duck. Um, could you could you describe what that is? What it looks like? Sure, if, you know, when people listen, maybe they can do a quick Google look. <laughs> quick Google look. Um, yeah. uh, Gooey duck is the largest burrowing clam in the world. Mm. There have been reports that um, some have lived up to 100 years, and um, some have been over 100. There's been recordings of over 100 pounds of gooey duck. Um, generally, um, the market calls for a two to four pound. Um, gooey duck, depending on the market. Uh, some markets like them larger, some slower. But imagine a big, giant clam with a big, long neck mm -hmm. or shell, you know, at the end. Um, they're considered a delicacy in, in China. Um, and um, we're trying to develop markets in um, the United States, but um, the business model right now is that you, you get your, you get maximum value from uh, markets overseas. Yeah, considering the demand uh, in Asia for gooey duck, I, I would just ballpark. I bet you're, you were exporting 95% of what you were catching because it Correct. You yeah, can't keep up with it. Yeah. Well, uh, I, I always like that. 2018, <laughs> we couldn't keep up with it. It's a challenge now um, that this COVID and the trade policies was the most devastating on gooey duck. That, that just killed the industry for a while. Uh, I always like to pepper in a light question or two uh, with my chef hat on. So I want to hear from both of you. What's your favorite gooey duck preparation? Tony, go ahead. Raw. <laughs> Sashimi style? Raw, just raw. I cut off a piece, a little soy sauce, and eat it. Lisa? Um, fr you know, fried, too, is good. Yeah, that's what I was going to say. I, I like the fritters. They make, yeah. yeah, gooey duck fritters. Those are pretty tasty. Well, I have to say it's not an attractive animal, but uh, once I got over that and I had my first gooey duck sashimi, I blew my mind. <laughs> it is so good. There, there's nothing like it. Uh, Lisa, I wanted to come back to the top, the commercial fishing topic, um, because I know that you uh, have also been pioneering 
a really robust hatchery industry. Um, I, I, tell us a little bit about that and then also the, the reasons behind it because they're a little bit different than some of the reasons people might start a hatchery. Yeah, yeah. So, well, so I grew up fishing. Um, I started the year before the Judge Bolt decision and my dad really made sure that I knew who Judge Bolt was and and the reasoning and how important that decision was. And so that was the seed that was planted many years ago for me. Um, but over the last few years, when I was going to school and working with a couple of mentors, um, so on the Nooksack River, that's our watershed that we have right now. Um, and our Chinook salmon were in trouble way back in the 70s. Um, we decided to stop fishing on those. Um, and no matter what, you know, we stopped fishing, but with the habitat degradation and the pollution, um, our fish were not coming back. And so um, after we had the, um, the, the shellfish hatchery, well, we, we, have, we have a few hatcheries now. Um, and if it wasn't for the hatcheries, you know, it's, it's something, the hatcheries came about um, for mitigation for the habitat degradation and also for the dams and different things that were constructed um, that were um, having a, taken a toll on our fish. And so, um, you know, it's not the, it's not our first choice. We would definitely love to be able to fish back we did like we did in in the early 1800s but that's just not the reality you know with the ha the habitat degradation um and the water pollution and marine survival um if it wasn't for hatcheries that we would not be able to access our our, our fish and um and it's been a long time ago you know that there is a lot of racial tension um, because you know we do fish on the rivers um, with our with our nets, and you know there's been we've been the scapegoat for many years um, that there's no fish because you know they and I, you know the Indians fishing on the river that's one of the big things and but the the reality is you know that we've been managing these resources since time immemorial and it's not since the last hundred years that it's really taken a toll on our resources. And so another way that we've had to adapt is to rely on our hatcheries. And I know that there's a lot of bad press about hatcheries that they, um, you know, that they are, um, they are taking a toll on the wild fish. But what ends up happening is our hatchery fish in the second stage, they contribute to our production. So if it wasn't for hatcheries, then we wouldn't have fish. But the interesting thing that we've done is we created a hatchery protection task force because we feel like that's one of the last resources that we can actually make some progress on. And so we started a coalition with the some tribes. And then in the last few years, we brought in um, the sport and recreational and charter fishers um, because there was a lot of pointing fingers, you know, that it's you, you are taking the fish, you're taking the fish. And it's like, okay, well, let's stop arguing about this and let's start working together so that we can bring fish back for everybody. And so that's what we've done. And we do have um, what's called the South Fork um, critical program that we have. And we've got some really good success on there. Um, but we are in this today battle, we're battling uh, different entities that are trying to um, stop hatchery production because they've got this idealistic view that, you know, we're going to bring the wild fish back. But, well, they say wild. Hatcheries are wild fish as well, regardless of what people say. Um, and a hatchery fish is basically, you know, is sustaining us. And so that's something that you know, we are going to fight tooth and nail um, to save what we have left. And that is basically what we have left. I need to take a quick break to recognize the sponsors of the show, but I, I definitely want to pick this back up when we come back in just a minute. The American Shoreline Podcast Network and CoastalNewsToday.com are brought to you by 
LJA Engineering with 28 offices along the Gulf Coast. The folks at LJA Engineering are at the top of the craft in the areas of coastal restoration, coastal infrastructure, rivers and channels, numeric modeling, disaster recovery, and design and construction oversight. And now they have a brand new coastal resiliency department headed up by our very own Peter Ravella. Check them out at lja.com. We are also brought to you by Coastal Transplants. Coastal Transplants prides itself on offering specific environmental and horticultural expertise with practical first-hand knowledge of all aspects of coastal revegetation projects. Their high-quality native and wetland plants, extensive agricultural and horticultural experience, along with their skilled and respectful crews, make Coastal Transplants your one-stop solution for restoring coastal ecology of your barrier island community. Learn more at CoastalTransplants.com. And we are brought to you by the Dune Science Group. Did you know that fiberglass is one of the strongest and most durable building materials in the world? That it is resistant to deterioration caused by UV light and salt water? Well, the Dune Science Group does. They offer a full slate of solutions for dune walkovers and boardwalks that are made of fiberglass and built to last. They can handle your dune walkover project from beginning to end, including permitting, design, and construction of the strongest and most durable dune walkover on the market. Learn more at the dunesciencegroup.com. Okay, we're back. Um, <clears throat> thank you for laying that out and talking about your hatchery program, and I couldn't agree more. Um, two episodes back on the show, we did a show on the intersection of racism and, and seafood and talking about the incredible amount of systemic racism that our, our food system was built on in this country, and of course, of which um, tribal nations were, were the original victims of. Uh, and, and I think a lot of people, I think some people know some history about the atrocities that were committed against the First Peoples here, um, especially in regards to terrestrial agriculture and buffalo. I don't think as many people know some of the history about the challenges that the tribes along the coast faced. And to your point about finger, you know, all of the finger pointing and that as our natural resources declined, it must be somebody else's fault. Um, but at the same time, it was the incredible, uh, the in business and industry that was built along these rivers, the damming of the rivers um, that created to habitat loss and environmental degradation that impacted the natural resources for everybody. Um, and I know that's a fight that you've been, that you've been having for decades um, or longer than decades. Uh, I'm glad to hear that you have brought in the, the sport and recreation industry on this topic, because um, as you're well aware, um, sport fishing groups started building hatcheries in the Gulf of Mexico and on the Eastern seaboard, at least in the 70s and probably before that, for the sole purpose of breeding fish to release for catching for fun. Um, and so that, that has long been a practice of, uh, of sport and recreational groups, fishing groups. So um, I. I, you know, it, it, I don't understand their opposition to it and where you're, where you are building hatcheries. And I'm glad that you brought them into the conversation. Many, you know, many years ago when we, we were starting our hatchery program here at Squamish back in the mid late eighties. Um, I know one of the first, um, we were one of the first um, tribes that went into partnership when it was still a very volatile situation um, with a local sports group here um, near our reservation, we started up a joint Chinook rearing project um, in uh, um, just in a, in a city, just um, in, a, in a small watershed just um, south of the city of Bremerton. Um, and this is still ongoing today. I mean, it's been like over 30 years that we've had this um, partnership with different sport groups here. And we're, and um, um, a lot of tribes, we were doing that a long time ago. Um, a, a lot of other tribes were too, when it wasn't real popular um, to do. So I always think that there's, um, there's always that group there that want to do something positive. Um, but you always get new people coming in that um, need to be educated. And that education process is always ongoing. I think Lisa is involved in a lot of those um, 
groups that um, um, need that education. I mean, it, it's an ongoing education process with the folks. Um, and um, it, it's the only way to go. And as far as the hatchery thing goes, um, they just have to come to the conclusion that they need a plan that encompasses hatchery practices, protecting wild fish, all the way to where hatcheries are constructed and where hatcheries need rehab. And all of this takes money and political will, um, which unfortunately in these times, at least since I was last involved, is sorely lacking. So um, it's an uphill battle. I you know, hear what Lisa is saying, been, been in it for 40 years, you know, it's gonna continue. But you have to keep educating people. That's the way it's gonna work. So I think one of the th things that would be helpful for our audience to really visualize is all of the reasons that these tribal nations fish, which may be different than than what some of our listeners are used to, which is primarily for recreational purposes. And then they enjoy their seafood in their favorite restaurant or from their favorite grocery store. Um, it, you know, as I understand it, sort of three main categories of, of fishing um, for tribal nations would be ceremonial, which I think you touched on, Lisa, subsistence fishing, and then of course built you've built out commercial fishing operations. Is that a fair characterization? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I just um, so just to kind of give just going back a little bit context um, when Tony was talking about um, this the co-management process. Um, years ago, they created a process called the North of Falcon, and that's um, negotiations that we go into um, early in the year with um, Washington Department of Fish and Wildlife. So we go through um, watershed by watershed to agree on what's called a list of agreed fisheries. Um, and the reason why I'm telling you this is that, you know, for years, we meet yearly to divvy up what's left. And basically the way that the management was going is we were writing the harvest to zero. And so the reasoning we decided to really hit on this hatchery is that we started with a goal, um, a 10 year plan to get our harvest levels back to the mid eighties because that's when we had an abundance. And so, you know, what I believe that what you focus on manifests. So if you're gonna ride the harvest to zero, then that's what we're going to get. But we changed focus um, on a 10 year plan to rebuild our production levels because the state unilaterally um, reduced those, um, the hatchery production um, quite a while ago. And they did that, they were not supposed to do that because there is an obligation for us to have our hatchery fish. And I didn't point out that hatchery fish in the mid 80s were deemed a, a, a treaty fish. So that is a treaty obligation and the treaties are the supreme law of the land. And so the, I just wanted to make sure that we hit on that point of how important our hatcheries are to us. Um, and yeah, so um, yeah, and I kind of got off track where the no. question was. No, 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 that's, that's great. I thank you for that clarification. Uh, I, I was pivoting to, to shift the conversation to talking about the pandemic um, and where we are now. And and Lisa, why don't we start with you and tell us a little bit about how your tribe and the tribes around you are being impacted by the pandemic, both personally and then professionally with your fisheries. Yeah, so it's, well, as, as Tony mentioned before, you know, the marketing and the tariffs were an issue to begin with before we went into the COVID. Um, and then since the COVID hit, um, since Jan, well, it started in January, um, you know, we've, the markets were closed, um, exports to China, and then also the Canadian border. And as um, Tony mentioned with the restaurants and that sort of thing. But I think one of the biggest things that has hit our community is that, you know, we do have a lot of people, we have a lot of funerals in our community. And when we have funerals, um, the biggest part of our funerals are feeding our people and feeding our people our traditional foods. 
Um, and we have not been able to, it's been very limited. Our funerals have just been to families. And so we usually come out as a community to support and lift the family up that's lost a loved one. And we haven't been able to do that. And so I think it's really taken a toll on all of us spiritually. We have winter ceremonies um, that, you know, we couldn't, um, we couldn't go through. And so, so there's been a lot of impacts that way. Um, but in the, recently, we started um, doing some distributions to our communities. Uh, we've been, uh, with some of the, the COVID money, we are able to um, purchase, we've had to adapt. And so we are supporting our buyers, you know, to support our fishermen, to make sure that they are covered with the price. Um, but with that, um, product, we are doing distributions to our community. So far, one thing that we've done is we had sockeye in the freezer and we took them out and we distributed them to the community of, we are big, we can a lot of fish. And so we had some of our community members can those and then we distributed them and we always start with our elders because they're our most important, you know, um, people that we have in our community that we rely on. So we fed, so we use the community to be able to step up to help each other. And then also we've had a couple of crab distributions and now we're going on a couple of Chinook um, distributions. So that's been a little bit of uplift to the community, but, um, but like I said, it has been really challenging for us um, being basically panicking and being in dire straits of, you know, we finally get an opening and we don't have a market for us. What are we going to do? And so mm. we are creating a, um, I guess you're t talking more about the effects so that we, we, we are, you know, like not being able, we've had um, a, a rise in suicides and a rise in drug overdoses. And I know um, a lot of it is due to us not being able to be going back to our traditional ways. And, you know, we always say, you know, like when we look at the salmon, how pristine it was back in the day and how it's kind of gotten to this almost sick, um, you know, state. Well, that's the way that our people have gone parallel with that. You know, we were very, healthy, strong people. And now, you know, we are having to, you know, reach out to substances because we're losing our way of life. And so I believe that is a big contrib contributor to that. Mm, I hate to hear that. Tony, you have something going on? Yeah, I just want to, same situation here as what, you know, Lisa outlined. Um, we're doing a lot of, you know, a lot of the same things. Um, um, what's really, been bothering me is the inability for us to gather, the inability for when we have deaths. Thankfully, we haven't had too many since this has come down, but we've had some. Um, the inability to um, to not be able to go um, uh, have those gatherings. Um, we had to cancel um, our our celebration. We've been doing it for over a hundred years, and it was called. Chief Seattle Days and it honored the Suquamish, Duwamish Chief Seattle, City of Seattle was named after Seattle. Um, for the first time in over a hundred years, that is not gonna happen. And that that that's that that is a major, major, major thing for us that we're not gonna be able to have that gathering, um, have all our other have all of our other tribal members meet and um, um, that's pretty bad, pretty bad for the community. Um, canoe journey, also a big major um, um, event here and within the culture, um, that didn't happen. Um, so yeah, it's, it, it's very, very, very hard on the community. And um, um, it's, uh, but I think because of the leadership of the tribal council and our elders and, um, you know, we're doing the best we can do. Um, we're also putting up salmon, um, making sure our fishermen have a um, uh, place to sell their fish. Um, we're deemed an essential business, so we've been able to been able to keep operating. Um, we have been fortunate that we haven't had a whole lot of COVID cases here. Um, 
In fact, we just um, had our first tribal member positive test a couple weeks ago. That's not been the case at Lummi. Um, they've been hit, you know, they have been hit particularly hard um, and that's unfortunate. And, um, but I just think this is just something we will survive. Um, um, people's spirits seem to be, you know, as up and good as they can, but you know, it, it is hurting. And um, um, I just, um, I reiterate everything Lisa, you know, Lisa outlined there, we're, we're facing the same things. Um, as far as business goes, um, seafood since 18, the seafoods, seafoods industry in general in Washington has been struggling because of, because of, like I said, the tariffs and trade issues. And um, um, we're going to have, we're going to have to just fight back from that. Um, in particular, like I said before, our oyster program has just been devastated. And, um, you know, we're trying to figure out now, you know, what are we going to do? Generally what happens is um, these, these oysters will grow larger. They'll get to extra large. Um, the bigger they get, the less value they are. And um, um, the less of a market you have um, domestically, especially under a certain situation. So we, we will probably be focusing um, our marketing to Asia. Um, the Asian market likes a larger oyster. Um, and we're, gonna, we're looking at that. Um, and just hoping that, you know, the restaurant industry recovers so we can, um, you know, begin growing tumble bags again. So, yeah, it's hard. Not a whole lot of aid out there for um, seafood businesses and, and it's all good stuff. Yeah, I, well, I can relate. Um, you know, in the culinary world, it, it's been devastated by the restaurant closures. And then a lot of people don't think about how that ripples backwards through the supply chain and where restaurants have gotten their product from, um, down to the people who are cleaning their linens, uh, you know, uh, supplying them dishes, um, produce, everything, and how it's really devastated a lot of people in the supply chain. Um, so I'm going to ask a question of both of you. Lisa, I'll start with you. What, what, do, what did I not ask you that you want to make sure the audience hears about today um, and understands that they might not? You know, we face so many challenges um, as tribes, um, and we have a you know, we have a lot of responsibility um, because, you know, for us, you know, it's our sacred obligation. Like I really, you know, like back in with my video is that I really have the sacred obligation to our ancestors that started this fight um, to make sure that, you know, the promises were upheld. Um, and so I feel like it's my watch right now and I take it on very personally so that, you know, my grandchildren will be able to exercise their treaty rights. And so I see a lot of different frustrations and, and it's very scary, um, you know, with the, the um, Endangered Species Act and um, a lot of regulations that are being um, put upon the tribe. And I feel like, um, you know, the tribe, when I, when I think about even just in my lifetime, um, you know, we used to have the biggest, well, we do, we have 600 fishers right now. We had, you know, historically over a thousand fishers. We are one of the biggest um, fishing tribes in the world. And to see us having to really struggle to actually, you know, for our people to make a living for us, you know, to feed our families. Um, but ultimately, you know, we used to have seine boats that were big catchers, and now we have just a very little handful. And so when we talk about endangered species and we talk about all these regulations, um, that the tribes are ultimately paying the price for our modern day luxuries that we have. And so what I really would like to press upon that is that, you know, I had a mentor, Randy Kenley Sr., that I learned a lot from. And, you know, with all of the struggles that we're going through, I just said, well, how do you keep fighting? And he said, well, you know, if we quit, then they win, you know? So I know that I'm gonna continue fighting until there's no fight left in me because what's the alternative, you know, if we don't stand up and, and try to um, 
you know, keep our way of life, then we're going to lose it. And I really don't want that on my hands under my watch. So that's just, that's exactly what I wanted to say. Tony. I learned a lot from our elders. I think that's a lesson everybody can learn as, um, you know, we go through this, um, you know, our elders and people, some of them suffer through a heck of a whole lot more than this. And um, we're just, we're, we're just worried about, you know, there's just too many people worried about whether, when, when can I go to my next movie or when can I go to my next football game or, you know, something like that. And there's a heck of a lot more at stake here than that. Than that. And um, it's about, you know, it's about survival and uh, tribes are fighting this long before, you know, any of this come down and um, we just have to, um, you know, that's what I want to, um, you know, reiterate that um, you got to keep, you have to keep, keep focused and keep fighting. Well, thank you both for taking some time today to share those stories and share those thoughts. I think it's really valuable for the audience to hear because many of them, it's not something that they've intersected with or dealt with before. And I think we learn the most when we hear the experiences of others that are different than ours. Um, and, and this has been really val invaluable. So thank you both. Yeah. Thanks. Thanks for having me. Nice meeting you, Lisa. You too. Thank you. Thank you again to Tony Forsman and Councilwoman uh, Lisa Wilson for a fascinating conversation today about the rich history and heritage of tribal nations to fishing and seafood. I certainly learned a lot and I hope our listeners did as well. Uh, please join me in supporting these communities through a tough time by ordering your next two seafood meals from SuquamishSeafoods.com uh, and LummySeafoodMarket.com. They'll ship direct to your door. And I know I'm already fantasizing about that gooey duck sashimi and some miso glazed salmon. As always, send me your feedback and show ideas to robertevansjones.com and subscribe to the American Shoreline Podcast Network on Apple, Google, Spotify, or wherever you normally get your podcast. Until next time, I wish you calm seas.